guest this afternoon needs little introduction. It's a pleasure to have on our series investment banking veteran and legendary corporate advisor Trevor Rowe AO. Trevor, thanks for your time this afternoon and for welcoming us into Crown Sydney Barangaroo. Beautiful setting. I thought I'd start with exactly that. How do you find being in the surrounds of Crown Sydney and how do you find being a resident in the building here? Well, thank you, Rob. It's a delight to meet you and have this interview. Uh, we're very fortunate to be part of the Crown Residence Group here. Uh, we enjoy wonderful facilities, high quality construction building, quality services, quality staff. And this is an iconic building now in Sydney. It's from every aspect of Sydney, you can see this iconic building. So we're very fortunate to be part of uh, uh, this, uh, this, this group of residents. Now, we've spoken previously about the current environment, so I thought today's discussion will focus more on sort of your career and your achievements. Before we get into that, though, I'm interested to get a sense on sort of what you're hearing and seeing on the ground in terms of the strength of the domestic economy. Well, I think we're going to see, as a result of Victoria and New South Wales coming out of the pandemic and the government and the fiscal and monetary support by the government and the central bank, we're going to see quite a surge in the economy. So I think we'll have a very strong economy for the next, at least for the next six months into the new year. Uh, so through to mid next year, be very strong, I imagine. And we're at the tail end of this year, as you mentioned, with lifting of restrictions right across the board, particularly here in the East Coast. Where do you see the growth coming from for Australia in 2022? Well, I think in several, obviously there's a resource strong resource cycle at the moment. So resource is going to be very strong for us and continue to be a major export contributor. But also too, uh, uh, agricultural related products, grains and the like, are going to be very strong. There's a food shortage around the world. Australia is renowned for producing quality foods. There's been droughts in Russia and parts of the United States. So we're well positioned in terms of you know, selling quality product into these markets. So I think we'll see strong export growth continue in the next year. We'll see strong consumer spending, all that pent up money that the consumers now are going to leash on spending. Overseas trips, we'll see a big boom in movement there. We've seen a big boom and it's continuing in house improvements as a result. Some 55 billion normally gets spent on overseas trip. Well, it's all being spent domestically at the moment, but it's going to be a big unleashing into next year. Uh, so that'll be a, a strong growth, growth commerce. So it'll be a mixture of strong exports, consumer sentiment being very positive. And I think corporates are getting, we're gaining some confidence now. There's some issues, of course, around skill shortages. That's going to be a real problem, getting people back into work. Some people are rather slow coming off government assistance. So that'll be a bit of a problem. And there's a supply chain, serious supply chain problem at the moment around the world. And hopefully, Next year, that, that can be a bit more cohesively orchestrated. Uh, China's a challenge. That, that China now is an important factor in the global economic scene. But the US is going to come back quite strongly, I believe. So it's, it's going to be a very positive you know, first six months, just nine months of next year. And just on the risks and, and challenges that lie ahead, you mentioned the China issues there. How do you see Australia should best be sort of navigating the difficulties that? trade relationships bring about, particularly in regard to the Australia-China? Well, unfortunately, the dynamics around China has changed. Xi Jinping has emerged as the core leader, the paramount leader. And that's not going to change until he changes his mind about Australia. That's unlikely to happen very quickly. You know, he's made his stance. All the wolf warrior, war, war warriors were out there uh, 
speaking negatively about our, our country. And he lost the face, he's not going to change that. It, I think we're tied to the US now. If US-China relationships improve, maybe we can piggyback on that. And that, that'll be, that call will be made by Xi Jinping. And so little else we can do about it. Business groups and, and the like just can't do much about that. But there will be, there is some emerging behind the scenes activity going on. Even coal's being diverted, I understand, into China. Even lobsters, I hear, are being divided, diverted via Hong Kong into uh, China. So there's still some things happening. But, 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 but iron ore, of course, the big question, iron ore has masked our overall trade situation. If you took that out, there would be quite a hole. But we've done fairly well in diversifying our, our products. We've got quality export products. Coal, it's, you know, I know, it, it's, you know we're going to learn to live with climate change and, and make the adjustments. But coal's still going to be a major factor because India in particular is going to consume a lot of coal. And we have quality coal coal, some of the best in the world. Even, I think, China might well start buying some coal for nece by necessity, not by otherwise. But they'll mask it in some way. They've already allowed some ships to uh, export Australian coal and unload in China. Before we move on, what's your reading on the enormous level of M&A and corporate activity that's taken place this year and last year? Oh, it's extraordinary. The level is just amazing. Um, it's, it's driven by several factors. One, significant fiscal and monetary stimulus by governments and central banks. We've got a lot of liquidity around the, the place. Corporates looking to buy assets. And during the pandemic, there's some uncertainty. Uh, and so people have been expanding rapidly. And that's led to a real boom in, uh, in M&A activity. So it's got to do with both domestic integration, global r r r linkages and the like, and also, importantly, regional. Now let's talk about Trevor Rowe, the person, because we haven't spoken about your background previously. As I understand it, you grew up in Perth. Your father was a bricklayer, your mother was a storekeeper. Tell us about your upbringing. Well, as you said, my father was, uh, he, he was a veteran of World War II in the Kokoda Trail, and he was somewhat injured, so he had a bit of a health problem from time to time. And my fond memory of, in Western Australia growing up was not only was West Australia, a wonderful place to grow up in, very fortunate. Uh, but, you know, you know, I had a grandfather that was, and we were of Welsh extraction on both sides, genuine convicts, and he was always telling me how terrible the British were. And my father was telling me about the World War II stories. And, um, but I, my fond memory is that when, when my father was working, we ate lamb chops. When he wasn't working, we ate rabbit. And one of my first experiences as a young man going to France, the waiter bowled up and said, Rabbits are special today, and I said, "Geez, give me a break." Uh, so uh, I was a very fortunate, young man, because uh, my mother was quite driven. My father was pretty well laid back, and uh, they had said maybe leave school when I was 15 because I just couldn't afford to keep me there. And my mother said, "Go out and tell your story. You've got a wonderful imagination. Go out and sell Trevor Rowe." So at 15, I was out there selling Trevor Rowe, and I was very lucky. I found a mentor who for some reason took a shine to me and uh, said, look, you'd make a great accountant. Ever heard, you know, why don't you join Pete Mark Mitchell, Premier Chartered Accountant, to do all my books and stuff. Senior partner was a good friend of his, and through his direction, he, uh, he uh, got me in there. Now, I was a very keen Aussie rules football player those days too, but he didn't like football much, and he made me just study pretty intensely. But I, I, I developed an immediate passion for what it was, because 
one, one indelible impression that was left with me was the senior partner said to me, look at a balance sheet, not at the numbers so much, but what's the story? What's the balance sheet telling you? And that really sort of, so I was a, I was a, a rare enthusiast in the accounting classes, but I, I really enjoyed it and I really, and so I was very fortunate, I was a very lucky man. And therefore, I've tried to mentor people. Uh, I've been a member of the ASX for chairman's uh, mentoring group. I've mentored a number of ladies there hopefully quite successfully. They still talk to me, so it must be wonderful. And I've given up some jobs I could have, would have liked, like chairman of tourist commissions and things, to some of them, it's been terrific. And you know, also young people like to mentor them, and that's why I got very involved in education at Bond University, private university, very responsive. And, I, and two other, with two other fellows, we formed a vocational training firm, because I want to elevate the, a lot of young guys that do vocational, vocational training, see themselves as second-class citizens to tertiary education. I want to change that dynamic. So we went out of a way to try and make them feel special. We had on-campus, online, and on-site training programs. And we canted, like we did graduations. They're getting a TAFE letter in the mail, you get a little bit of a graduation. They felt special, they want to belong. Young people need to feel they belong to something and, and they're committed to the journey. And it gets and I, I love passionate young people. and. And so I really enjoyed that part of my career. Really enjoyed it. You worked at Pete Marwick. This would have been, I think, in the 1960s or thereabouts. Yeah. Tell me, what was Australia like during that period? Oh, it's, it's extraordinary. It was a fairly benign sort of a society, I would suggest to you. It was, everything was pretty clear-cut and rules were rules and laws were laws and everything was very orderly. And disorder and confusion has come about with the enormous transition in communications, uh, media, how we get communicate with each other, it comes at us so fast now. And you know, I've witnessed the coming of the internet and I went to watch Bill Gates down in Melbourne when he came to Melbourne in the, was it the 70s or 80s, talked about the internet and what, how it's gonna change their lives. And we said, oh yeah, sure, <laughs> boy, has it ever. So it's been a wonderful experience, but the world moves at a lot faster right now. And, and we're more connected globally uh, than we were, used to be. You know. We regarded the tyranny of distance from Australia was a terrible problem. Still a tragedy on the old body when you're travelling at my ripe old age. But the tyranny of distance doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter where you are now. You know, you can be as effective working from home, in the office, or travelling or moving around. And that's the difference. Big change in the whole communication framework and how interconnected with the globe is now. And fast forwarding a bit, I think in the, by the 70s you ended up in Malaysia and it's sort of where the genesis of your investment banking career commenced. Yes. Tell us about how you ended up in Malaysia and, and what you recall of the time. I, I got an offer as a result of an advisory assignment we did at Pete Marsh for AC Good to set up in Perth. And I had an inclination, I rather liked that, and the senior partner said to me at the time, look, if you, if you, if you want to come back, you can always come back, Trevor. I, I sense you, you might be like this. So I got involved in a broking company. We did an IPO. Uh, it was quite interesting. And then I got an offer made to me to join this startup bank in Malaysia, which was an investment bank operating in Asia and the Middle East. And I went up to Malaysia, met the chairman, a very fine man. The general manager was an old Englishman. Uh, the Arabs had put in there. It was Arab banks and Malaysian government. And that gave me my first sort of exposure to international investment banking. Uh, I, I just loved it and you know, it was hard work. We traveled around Asia and up to the Middle East back and forth. And we did a lot of interesting things. We did the first ever 
Ringgit bond issuer for the state of Sabah, treasurer of the University of Tasmanian educated young guy. He and I got on famously, so we did that. And he was a Kadazan, very fine young man. So we did lots of interesting things. And our chairman was Tan Sri Rajamoha, who was the economic advisor to the then prime minister. Very nice man and very well connected, so it was wonderful. And then I was debating whether to come back here and join a come back and I had a couple of offers I was looking at and I got offered asked by Solomon Brothers would I like to go to New York and so every young man likes to chance his arm so I went up to New York and I must say my first week at Solomon Brothers I began to wonder whether I made the right decision because pretty much more aggressive uh, society it's very money driven compared to what it was those days much more so than it is now. Uh, focus was totally on making money and you felt like a bit of a mercenary but it was very fast and aggressive so but I, 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 and I loved it and uh, I really enjoyed living in New York and working here. You know. I want to ask you about that uh, point exactly so you moved to the US what's it like when you get there and you're working on Wall Street particularly during the sort of halcyon days of the uh, of the 1980s? Yeah it was, it was, it was, it was you know it was it was a different order than it is now it was somewhat Rafferty's rules, if I can use that expression, and anything went. And, you know, a lot of money around at the time, and market was just forging ahead, and, and um, it cast a lot of sins. And, uh, and then we went to the legendary fall of our legendary chairman, John Goodfriend, and Warren Buffett came in, and that brought a new order and stability to the place uh, that he had brought in. A, a man called Bob Denham, who was a senior partner at Munger Tolls, Charlie Munger being Warren's partner, he, he brought in a, you know, he brought a sense of a change in sort of the stability of the organisation. Good friend loved chaos. He was a chaos type leader, very effective but chaotic. And he was a trader by nature. He didn't like us most investment bankers wasting time building relationships. He liked doing deals, but he had to have an investment making arm to make his business tangible and linked together. So it was quite a lot of fun actually. And it, but it was a different lifestyle too. I don't, couldn't, I don't know what I could do it now, but I used to you know, get up in the morning, run around the island. I lived on Roosevelt Island, run around the island in the morning, got on the, on the aerial tram from Roosevelt Island over to 59th and 2nd, went down to Wall Street, worked all day, then went out to the bars at night with the boys or entertaining clients, back home 9.30, started again. So it was wonderful. And tell us about some of the deals that you were working on, or at least what was your sort of position at the company during that time, and what was some of the work that you were involved in? Oh, when I first joined Solomon Brothers, I started at the lower le levels. I was working on various transactions. My, my role there was to, uh, I was asked to help ultimately build an Australian business, but also to develop linkages for American companies looking at Asia, investing in Asia, because, you know, I... Uh, you know, obviously Americans then were sort of starting to think about Asia, not many of them that, that are aware of what happens, the culture. And of course, the big mistake most people make about uh, China, particularly Asia, sorry, in those days they thought it was homogeneous. It's not. You know, China is vastly different from Japan, culture in the way they do business, Korea to the Philippines, to Singapore, to Indonesia, to Malaysia. So very vastly different. So, And I, I really enjoyed it. So. Uh, when I was transferred down here, I was somewhat reluctant to come because Paul Kitty had become treasurer and he was very kind of Solomon Brothers. He gave us very good business, but he then said to our chairman, look, you need to send Trevor Rowe down. He's an Australian and we need to set up an office. 
And so the chairman called me and said, are you Australian, are you? And I said, yes. Said, are you sure? Said, I'm pretty sure. And he said, but you look and sound like one of us. I said to him, well, that's a compliment for you or me, actually, but he missed the point. But anyway, so I was on the plane and set up an office down here and so Solomon Brothers uh, commenced business. And what were some of the prevailing economic themes or trends that were present at the time? Well, from an Australian point of view, we were just, uh, you know, John Howard had just completed that review of the Campbell Commission, Keith Campbell, and he couldn't get that via Fraser to implement it. Whereas Paul Keating jumped on it and he really took to it. And he had the courage then to take that, those recommendations and John Howard, as leader of the opposition, supported him. And so it was a wonderful minute because Australia was opening up to the world. And I remember being quoted at the time, the floating of the currency brought us into the real world. And it added all sorts of more complications and disciplines we would need in terms about running our business. We need to be more productive. We need to be more interconnected, both interoperatively, globally and domestically. And so it was a, it was a fascinating, you know, wonderful period of dramatic break from a fairly consistent but tedious sort of past, if you will, to a new, more dynamic business environment. And I think the more efficient allocation of capital uh, and, and capital inflows increased and, and, and it was a floating of the currency made a whole different sort of game. And it was much more interesting and really spurred Australia on. Productivity increased, globalization was a very important part of raising a lot of people out of poverty and we were part of that scene. And so it was a very good, great time to be in Australia as it turned out. There was a real appetite, as you mentioned, for reform at that time. Yeah. Do you still see that appetite for reform today? I don't think the political will's there right now uh, on either side of the party. You know, uh, I, I can see the New South Wales Premier has got a reform bent, but uh, nationally I don't see that yet. And I think that's a function of, we've just been through the pandemic. People are weary. And I mean, you know, they've been locked up for a long time. And it's, it's not by nature the way to go. And so I think people are sort of reluctant to, they don't want more dramas in their life, they want to settle for a while. So I don't see major reforms, unfortunately. We need, there's a number of areas. We need to reform our tax base. Yeah, our direct tax is far too high. We need to increase GST, have more indirect taxes. Um, we need to review our industrial relations scene. We need, more, we need to increase our labour productivity. Uh, we need to grow our skill bases here. Some of that's been done now, but in terms of major reforms, I just don't see them being possible on the horizon. I think we're going to go through a period now of trying to adjust to the new realities of irrespective views on climate change. Global investors and global governments are going to drive our behaviour here. And so we've got to get with the program, so to speak. And so these adjustments are going to be quite significant for some people. There'll be new investments. I think the security partnership between the UK and the US and the technology transfers are going to be very important, might well stimulate high-end technology development. Joe Hockey's taken initiative with Ellison to put together the 1941 Strategic Fund, and I'm delighted to be part of that. And I think that's going to be very important because not only it's going to enhance the technology that's transferred to Australia, it's going to enhance our manufacturing, but also enhance our high-end manufacturing. Could be well a major stimulus to what we need to do. We need to innovate here, we need to get into this high-tech uh, manufacturing scene, uh, traditional manufacturing base, our cost base is too expensive for that. So we've got to keep moving up. We've got to increase our productivity. And that means absorbing new skills, retraining, importing the right people as immigrants and the like. It's very important. 
Now, if my maths is correct, you spend around about 23 years at Citigroup Global Markets working across the US, Asia and Australia. When you reflect on that period today, what are some of the major accomplishments or achievements that you're proud to have delivered? Well, in my first days in Malaysia, we, we, we developed the domestic bond market. That was quite exciting. Did a couple of M&A transactions. But one of the most exciting things I did was uh, we had a Bumiputra fund. We invested in a startup company that was going to build Tata trucks. I joined French with Tata out of India. That was highly successful and a wonderful experience there because I had the privilege of meeting JDR Tata, the founder. He's a wonderful man and a man of great presence and morale, a man of great strong moral fiber and he was a wonderful man. And I, I enjoyed, as an Australian coming out of Perth, a fairly brush young man, I suspect people would say. Um, but I learned fairly quickly that if you're going to uh, operate and work in Asia, you've got to learn to, you've got to learn and understand what the, their cultures are, how they perceive things. If you can make that cultural adjustment and, and you can respect and appreciate their culture, they will respond, Asians will respond. So it was a fascinating exercise. And you know, my daughter did Japanese and Chinese. Uh, too hard for me, but I did Bahasa Malay, which is an easy language. I speak a bit of Malay and Philippine, Tagalog and the like. So I found that the different cultures was really interesting, and really stimulating. And Asia was, in that period too, was just coming along too, with it, after the oil boom and the like. Transfer of money from the Arab oil companies and sort of their banking system being recycled into Asia. And we were a small part of that scene. It was very exciting. So, and, and foreign banks started to come to Asia you know, the city banks and all these banks that emerge and broaden their product range from just traditional banking to more investment banking, funds management. So it was a very exciting period. Uh, so it was a great learning experience. And so, I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm a very fortunate man. I had the opportunity. Then I got to Asia, which I really, you know, really formative, interesting years for me. Then New York, back to Australia, and I went back to Asia, of course, from 91 to 2004 to, as my the then chairman, John Goodfriend said, to Americanize all those Chinese. <laughs> so I think that was going to be possible. And his, his favorite adage was you had to make money in six months, otherwise you got fired. I told him, you'll be firing me in six months. You don't, you've got to have a longer term perspective for Asia. But fortunately, he fell from power before six months is up. <laughs> now, I think I read somewhere that um, you mentioned one of the biggest lessons that you learnt over your career, or at least something that, that came naturally that assisted your career was the ability to build relationships. How do you go about building relationships with people? Well, I think that's depending on who they, who they are and their culture, to understand and respect it. If you respect them and their culture, that helps, particularly in an Asian context. But generally, I found relationship building was very important to get along with people. You need to build a trust, a relationship, and they, they hold you. I still talk to people I dealt with in India in the 70s. People I talk to in Malaysia, uh, in the Philippines, and Hong Kong, and China, and the US. I have friends I've had for a long time. In fact, keeping up my social network is a full-time job because uh, you know, you've got to keep in touch, otherwise you fade. But, but I think building relationships, I think that's a matter of being passionate about what you're doing, being committed, and developing a reputation for delivering credible advice or product. That's crucial. You've got to be credible. Uh, you can't afford to be uh, sloppy about that. You've got to be focused. 
Now let's delve into some of the other roles you've held. You were appointed a member for three years of the Takeovers Investment Panel, now known as the Australian Takeovers Panel. Talk to me about how this position came about and some of the work that you did as part of that. The Takeover Panel had been formed, but under Joe Hockey's auspices, he gave it a bit of a real push. And Nick Greiner actually suggested I should think about it. And I had a talk to Nick and Nick talked to Joe and Joe rang me, it's not a problem. So I went on a takeover panel. And I, I found it very instructive because the takeover process in Australia was bogged down with long court proceedings that took forever to resolve. So it made it costly. Uh, the benefits started to erode from the acquisition potential targets. And so you know, I recall once the late Justice Kim Santo, a wonderful man, wonderful lawyer, when I first came to Australia and opened the office in 85, he was our initial lawyer at Freehills, and Freehills still are, at Solomon Anyway, so um, he was on the takeover panel, and we went with Mike Tilley, actually, from Merrill, three of us were on a panel. So between Mike Tilley and I, we sorted it out within the day, and on the plane coming out, he said, that could never happen, this, this is wonderful. You two guys know the business, you, you, you mediated, you pushed one party here and suggested this and got them together, and it worked. And, and we resolved in a day what was normally a sort of court process not took forever. So it really facilitated the, the efficiency of the marketplace. And I think the takeover panels played a great role. We were very lucky we had a, Simon McKeon was the first chairman when I was there. He did an outstanding job. He was, he, credibility with the government was excellent and he allowed us to get on and do, deliver what we needed to do. So it was, it was a good group. It worked with all. During the same period, you were also chairman of Queensland Investment Corporation. How did you steer the company through challenges and opportunities in your capacity as chairman? Well, just on the, uh, on, on the takeovers panel, the reason I was only there three years, I was asked by Morris Newman, then chairman of the Australian Stock Exchange, to join the Stock Exchange. And of course, that would be inherent conflict. And so I had to unfortunately surrender my role in ASX. And, but I enjoyed being on the Stock Exchange because that's, we merged that with the with the Sydney Futures Exchange, a vital part of developing a viable financial platform for Australia, the integration of physical trading, futures, stocks and futures, and integrating that was a major success. That's one thing I was delighted to be a small part of. Um, and then I, I was approached by um, uh, the Treasurer and Premier of Queensland to take on the role as uh, Chairman of Queensland Investment Corporation. We, ha it, 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 we were blessed then. We had a wonderful chief executive, Doug McTaggart, and so he and I were able to work very effectively on a vision for QIC within the framework of the legislation, which was quite innovative legislation, which Future Fund was somewhat modelled on as well. And so Queensland was quite a far ahead, and we had a, we had a surplus in the fund through QSuper, and uh, it was an extremely interesting and challenging period. But very rewarding in the sense that we had good quality people and we were, we were very, we developed a very significant position from the beginning of in, in infrastructure, in private equity, that both new ventures we took on and we convinced the government to allow us to do that and we allowed the government to give us the freedom to set remunerations and the like. Now, recognising always we were dealing with public money or quasi-public money, the beneficiaries, the employees of the government. So we were very mindful that there were certain limits to how we allocated capital and what, how progressively we pursued matters. So we developed a, you know, a, a balanced risk-reward relationship 
and we did very, very well, both in infrastructure and private equity. You're also Chancellor of Bond University. I think Alan Bond once said that his two most proud achievements were Australia too, the yacht obviously and, and Bond University. What makes the university so special and what was involved in, in your role and your time there? When I came down from America, there was a bit of publicity about Trevor Rowe from Perth Boy opening up the office to Solomon Brothers in Sydney. The then Vice-Chancellor rang me and said, you know, look, you're a Perth boy, Bond, you know, we need scholarships. So I convinced Bond Solomon Brothers Foundation to provide scholarships, particularly in the financial area and the like. So I used to go to Bond every year and hand them out and chatting to people. And one day the uh, Chancellor, Vice-Chancellor asked me, would I be prepared to take on a role as uh, uh, an advisor to him uh, on his business, you know, on the strategy for the university and the like? And I agreed to do that. That led to a discussion with him about that the Chancellor was otherwise, you know, not, not was effective member. Uh, she was a good friend of mine, Imelda Roach. She'd been there for a while. She wasn't looking for a change. And uh, they, the council approached me to take it on. So I set out, I made as a condition of my involvement, a very uh, dramatic uh, governance changes. In other words, I'm at a smaller council, no members of staff, but it's a mechanism for professional staff to come through the Vice-Chancellor and put some very good people on it, like Catherine Greiner, Neil Belknaves, uh, the RMIT Chancellor uh, was the man who wrote the original curriculum of Bond. But the more important thing was Bond was a private sector enterprise, so we could do things that public universities couldn't do. So I was focused on two things. What do we need to do to build on our strengths? And so I consulted with Professor Myron Scholes, Nobel Prize laureate, who used to assist us with our algorithms for our trading at, at Solomon Brothers in New York when I was there. I got to know him quite well. I said, this is what Bond's all about. Tell me what I should do. And as a result of that, he said, get out of all these holiday programs with all these students visiting the Gold Coast. Otherwise, you'll just, you'd never be a serious university. And you've got to get into research. You've got to get into science. Well, getting, starting up a science program in Australia is very difficult because that's not what secondary students want to do. But there was a huge shortage of doctors. So I said, well. So we worked up a plan. And then we worked with my cost us $20 million. And I went to Peter Beattie and said, Peter, I've talked to the, my good friends at the ANZ Bank. They were the bankers to bond. And Ian McFarlane, now the chairman of Westpac, was very supportive of the idea of education. Very supportive for a banker. Because, you know, as someone once said, remarked, if you take a charge over a university, how do you foreclose on them? <laughs> so, but John McFarlane was very, so he supported our first initiative in the medical centre with loan funds. We had the land. And then I spoke to Peter Beattie, he said, if you get your friend John Howard to contribute some money, I'll match him. And then you need to get some doctors to come. So we did all that and it was great. So I'm forever grateful for Prime Minister John Howard's support for Bond and Peter Beattie's. They were terrific. They were very good supporters of private education. And, and because the students were paying their own way, there wasn't a ruckus with, you know, when politicians came to speak at the cat, they at least listened. They might have been grilled pretty vigorously afterwards, but at least got chances to speak their view. And so people like John Howard, Paul Haslock always came up to Bond because they, they, they enjoyed giving speeches and launching programs and so did Peter Beattie. So, and I was very focused on, we must deliver relevant curriculum 
to get students jobs. No point getting a degree that's worthless. In fact, I sat in on a commerce class just for the heck of it, pretending before I became chancellor as a student. And I, so I said to uh, the vice chancellor, look, we need to change our curriculum. So it's not relevant. And so I got hold of the business council, God bless Hugh Morgan, he agreed to meet with us. And we talked about what, what does business need from commerce students? And then we went around all the law faculties. We had a good law faculty anyway. It was very good for law. We said, how do we build on this? And we built a legal skills center with a mock-up mediation court, a federal court, a high court. And I remember he called me over and said, I uh, said, Chancellor, you told me you did build a mock-up of the high court. It's not so. I said, Justice, how have we failed? He said, your internet system works. <laughs> but, but my point is, it was a lot of fun. And, and talking to the student body was just, I credit, we had a student council. I sat, I've sat with them every month and got lots of feedback. It was very inspirational. And I really enjoyed it. And that led into vocational training because what we did at two, we set up at Bond College that any student just quite didn't make the grade uh, to get into the university. We let him do his final year again, but in a university type setting, so they get familiar with it. And it was very, very rewarding because the first time I went to, you know, the, uh, some of the young people that otherwise perhaps lost their way, re-found their way in the forward. So I really enjoyed that, that part of my, the benefits I got as a young fellow from a mentor, I tried to translate that into Bond. And I had a wonderful vice chancellor, Rob Stable. And we were a great partnership. And uh, we, we built a health science medical center. We got the most controversial dean that was very, you know, very radical and his curriculum was fabulous. Um, and we built the new university over that period. A lot of, we, we did, I was very proud that we had legal, legal school center, school of medicine and health. We had a the first six green star building in the country. And Greg Parrymore from Mervac was our partner in that venture. And so we did a lot of great things. And Bob Hill from ADCO was very part of developing that for us. So that was a great experience. I really enjoyed that. I've seen the trading room as part of the business yeah, school. Yeah. It's one of the one of the great. I saw one of those at a university we visited in Connecticut, and I said to Rob, "So, gee, I'm on the board of the stock exchange, and I got lots of banking friends." So, I called up Nicholas Moore at, at, at uh, Macquarie and said, "Look, you're always forever coming up here and hunting all the good good guys. How about investing in the trading floor?" So, he, God bless him, he invested in the trading floor. We had, I think 30 stations were set up trading, and the stock exchange provide deferred live feedback so they could run simulation programs and trading programs. It was fabulous. It would seem to me that there's still a discrepancy between the programs that Bond offers, which are so far advanced and so relevant to business studies, as opposed to what some of the public universities still offer in their curriculums. Do you see a, a future for uh, more private universities in Australia like you get in the US? Yes, I think there is a big future. You take Torrens University, where I'm now adjunct professor. That was started up about 10 years ago in Adelaide. Michael Rand uh, started up with a guy called Michael Mann from uh, Laureate Universities globally, set it up. It was sold two years ago to Strategic Education in the US, who are preeminent in online education. So now that complements their campus work and it's spread a very successful university. Um, and so I think there is. I think University's been somewhat rigid here, and the differentiation between the, the, the old traditional Big Eight, Sandstone universities, and the rest, and then when 
uh, when Labor brought in a merger of the vocational training firms with the universities, there was some dislocation, I think, in the effectiveness. Um, and I, I think this, they were too rigid. And then they fell in the trap of relying too much on one particular cohort, either Indian students or Chinese students. And of course, with the pandemic and the downturn, that's really caused some pain. Whereas at Bond, we only had a small cohort of about five and a half thousand students. But we had at one stage 82 different nationalities on campus. So that was that diversity was a strength amongst the students themselves. But of course, holds you in good stead when you're in an environment like this, instead of banking on one, because otherwise you 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 become overwhelmed by one particular culture over the other. And we were seeking diversification. So that was my own very enjoyable years. I really enjoy that. Now you've been involved in so many other roles that we could explore, as you mentioned, non-executive director of the ASX, chairman of UGL, chairman of Crescent Wealth, but one that I do want to ask you about is that you're a member of the Guardians of the Future Fund of Australia, set up, I believe, by Peter Costello. John Howard. John Howard, Peter Costello. Tell me about how you would evaluate the performance of the fund. Well, first of all, um, I was approached to be a normal guardian and Peter Beattie and Peter Costello and John Howe saw that when I had a conflict between QIC and The Guardian. And, and to Peter Beattie's great credit, uh, he allowed us to translate the, transfer the documentation and the strategy behind QIC to the federal government to look at and to the model emerged. Peter Costello was a very keen driver of it, and so John Howe was very supportive. And so John asked me would I be interested, and I said I would. And it was just before the 0708 crash when it got started. And so we had 65 billion, if you recall, allocated to us. And we at QIC were just winding back some of our equity exposures that year because we thought the markets looked a little too toppy. And so we were fairly, we didn't rush in to equities in a big way. So when the crash came, we were long cash, very well placed, did very well. And very, very good management, very fortunate in the initial CEO at Costello. Paul Costello, and then uh, David Neal took over, very smart, bright, very astute investment manager. And the benchmark set for us that was well achieved and very disciplined approach, recruited top class people. And it was like, like a mission. It was joining a government, but it was a mission which was run by the private sector. And then uh, Peter Costello took over as chairman, done a great job, very good job with it. So it's very important. Because Government was, the then Howard Costello government was smart enough to realise it had a lot of unfunded superannuation problems. And the military, all on defined benefits, were being rotated more faster than ever into these various overseas theatres and retiring earlier. Big burden. So they set this up to sort of deal with the future unfunded superannuation liabilities. Something the US would love to achieve, not, not remotely anywhere near close. That was a great initiative and the fund's done incredibly well. Now, all of these roles that we've discussed are in the past, but you're still active today. You were the former executive chairman of Rothschild & Co. Now you're a senior advisor. Tell me, what does that role involve on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis? Well, I, I try to assist clients where I can, where I get involved in transactions if I can add some value, or where I have a particular relationship. And so that's what I endeavour to do there. So I very much value that role and it gives me, keeps me active. And how would you evaluate the strength of the Rothschild & Co Australia business, particularly given the amount of new upstarts that have entered the investment banking industry? Well, well there's a lot of boutiques started up. 
I don't think it's a particular banker has particular expertise, but it's also a very effective way to run your business because you get frank dividends if you're a proprietor as distinct from tax bonuses. So, and 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 the market's matured here now. You know, you have the big names to deliver muscle in terms of underwriting and the like, but the boutique firms, you know, agile and think laterally and the like. So there's some very good, very good boutiques out there. Rothschild's a very strong brand. It's a wonderful brand. It's got a long history. And I remember Baron David when he, when I first got, was approached to join Rothschild, 18 years ago, 19 years ago. After I thought I'd retired when I left Solomon Bros after 26 years because I wanted to concentrate on my directorships and the university. And um, we then were approached to sell Sydney Airport by the Prime Minister, John Howard, uh, and said, as long as you manage it. So I did a deal. So I sort of focused on the university, my other directorships, and the sale of Sydney Airport. Now, gee, the latest offers are, are amazing compared to what we got. But at the time, we were staggered. We exceeded our best valuations. Macquarie did a wonderful job and be a great investment. So when I met David de Rothschild, I said, David, what, what's your expectation? He said, look, don't know, you know Asia or Australia that, that well. We've been there for a long time, since 1852. But um, you know, you're, our, you're, the, you're the, the guardian of our reputation. We, we're managing this, we have this annuity, this 400 years, 450 years of history, and we have to pass this on to the next generation. So reputation is what it's all about. So empathy towards our clients and our employees. And that was a wonderful mantra. And, and that approach, it really sat well with me because we, get, we conduct ourselves very honorably and well. And our business has just gone from strength to strength. The other thing I want to ask you, Trevor, is you've worked with and seen all types of business leaders and, and CEOs and uh, corporate titans. Based on your experiences and, and your career, who stands out as, as you know, the, the real guns or the, uh, the real top operators that you've seen? I presume you would have seen Sir James Wolfenson in the 80s and 90s in New York. Um, James Gorman is, is you know, one of, the, one of the standouts. Who else really um, has excelled, do you think? Well, in the 60s and 70s, I was very impressed with the chairman of BHP, Sir James McNeil, remember him? Very fine man, um, but John Ralph, I just said Jim Wolfson was a legend in his own right, and, um, and quite a character, interesting man. Uh, Morris Newman, um, uh, Jim Bain, there's a whole raft of people. Uh, uh, Bruce Keane and Borrell, I was very impressed with him, man of integrity and knew what he was doing. Um, and of course, in the investment banking area, there was a lot of brilliant people. Alan Moss, Nicholas Moore, outstanding job filling that bank. And they convinced me to, in, they convinced me to invest, which was even better. And so they did very, very well. But innovative and encouraged talent, developed ideas, very ideas driven. So they're fine people. There's a lot of people. Australia's made up, we're, we're, for a small country, we're rather unique. There's a lot of very prominent people here. That, you know, you get to know and you realise there's a lot more well, very capable people here that entrepreneurs, just, you know, take Alan Maloof, what he's done, money and garbage, he once said, who would have believed that? Now he's a bigger boat than me. And uh, so, there you go. so there's a lot of fine people around here that, in this country. And, you know, then we had the entrepreneurs, the crazy guys, you know, but 
envisioned and, and they used to, that sometimes they used other people's money. Alan Bond, Christopher Scase, Rob Holmescott was a brilliant, and I knew Rob very well. Brilliant man, inspirational. Took on BHP, who would have thought? I first met him when he set up a, from Rhodesia, he set up a little one-night man legal office in Perth, saying, yeah, here's some great legal ideas. And look what he did, he taking on BHP. Extraordinary people, John Elliott was in his heyday. And uh, there's a lot of fine people here. We've been blessed with a lot of great entrepreneurs, and some high risk, as that And then they've got some very sound business people here. What are the keys to success? Well, I think uh, it's very important to be focused, have a vision, uh, have empathy, um, driven and emotionally committed. If you're not emotionally committed to what you're doing, you shouldn't do it. And what about the key pieces of advice that you've picked up throughout your career that you can share? Oh, I've had a lot of advice uh, and hopefully it's been, and by and large, been very good for me. But you know, be measured, don't get too care of yourself, stay calm, stay focused. And, all, and I think the most important thing is treat people the way you want to be treated. Not only just clients, but people around you, your team, your staff. And it's all about empathy. And I'm a people's person. I love working with people. It's very interesting. And young people give you great feedback. And the younger they are, they're not, they're not constrained by telling you what they think. It's, it's wonderful. And if you, you know, you learn by that. And you learn by your mistakes over time. And if, you, if you're wise, you do. But I think it's all about empathy, passion, commitment, and empathy. I'm interested to get your perspective on managing adversity, whether personal or professional. How do you go about managing times of crisis or difficulty? Well, well, as a leader, it's very important to stay calm. I've been through financial crises and you have to stay calm and focused on the outcome. Again, dealing with people in an empathetic manner, showing empathy for them. And and again, one-on-one -on -one stuff, I've had to let people go. That's, I found it the most terrible thing in the world to do. But I always took it on myself. I never asked anyone else to fire someone on my butt. I always called them in and did it. And I tried to explain why and how. And, and look, I had some chats to some young people uh, my days. I said, look, you just don't have the criteria, I think, to make a great investment banker. It's, it'll be hard work for you. Maybe you should think about something else. And the joy I have is when the guy rings up two years later and say, geez, that was terrific advice. Thank you very much. I found what I want to do. That gives me a lot of heart. Uh, and so I've tried to be, you've got to have, got to have empathy for people. I, I, I look, I'm very mindful where I started from in life. And um, I'm very lucky, very fortunate man. And it's important we give back to our society and our community. That's why I jumped on things like being chairman of the RSPCA, involved with the Flying Doctors. Another great man, Michael Crouch, led that, that fine man. Um, and, um, and, you know, the educational cycle. Education is so important to young people. We've got to create opportunities for them, both in tertiary and vocational training. I thought we'd close out our discussion just by exploring some of the current themes and risks and, and opportunities. Firstly, how would you evaluate Australia's sort of response to the climate change um, issues that are, that are occurring at the moment? Do you think we're doing enough? Are we doing too much? Are we doing too little? Well, I say to people, irrespective of your views on climate change, you're either a climate change denier or you believe this climate change and you have some a panicked and urgent, but you've got to stay calm, focus on what you can do, what you can deliver. 
And bear in mind there's political realities here. You've got to deal with the political realities and find a balance as you go forward. And this is going to bring about quite dramatic changes as we make the migration to a more climate-friendly environment is the right approach. And that's going to take some time. I think business is up for it. Business realizes the importance of it. And more importantly, too, global investors are going to allocate capital based on what they believe people uh, believe is the right climate change. Now, what I'm worried about, though, is in this overzealousness to pursue climate change, capital might be inappropriately allocated in the industry, and probably some mistakes will clearly be made uh, and that to be sorted out. But people like Andrew Forrest, who's using his capital to, to pursue hydrogen and hydrogen applications, that's a great job, a great thing for him to be doing, because he's, made, he's, an, he's a great entrepreneur, one of Australia's great, a great Western Australian, and Andrew's now putting his money into you know, these sort of projects are very important. So he's, he's now into uh, innovative things like hydrogen, agriculture and the like. And again, agriculture. Some of the young people in agriculture I've come to meet of recent times actually, very innovative what's happening in, in agriculture in terms of more efficient farming, more climate friendly farming and quality products and innovative and, and the like. Cryptocurrencies, do you have a, a view on those, good or bad? Well, I, 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 I'm not a big fan of cryptocurrencies. I, I, I understand the concept, and but it's very volatile, and it's not within the control of governments. But I think the, the role of money is going to change, though. Uh, we're going to find that, you know, I don't know about you, I don't carry cash anymore, I don't carry a wallet. The iPhone now is not a phone anymore, it's a platform, it's my life. And I exchange everything by that mechanism, because I can record what's happening. I don't use cash anywhere anymore. Now, that's, I think, going to be a, a development because Google, Amazon, and these people are going to all develop their own exchange mechanisms and take it outside the banking system. So we're going to see significant changes in how central banks operate because right now they control the credit facilities. Some would argue not that well because they've exploded probably too primitively. But this time around, this, this crisis, most central banks did the right thing in the Western world. They learned from 07, 08. got to move quickly and decisively. And that's why Australia is in such good shape. And we're fortunate that John Howard and Peter Costello paid down our public debt. So now we might end up with something like 40 odd percent of debt to GDP, a lot better than the US, which should be 110 percent of GDP. So we're in a very fortunate position. And I think the government moved right with all its programs. It's going to do fast and larger than you expected. Speaking of interest rates, the RBA originally said, I think, mid or late 2024. Looks like that may be revised. Where do you see them moving in the medium term? Well, I think rates will be fairly benign for next year. But I think there is inflation pressure starting to emerge. And that's a result of supply chain difficulties, uh, adjustments in labour markets. Labour, labour wage inflation seems quite benign right now. But I, I, I would suspect that's going to pick up to a degree. So we might see some inflationary pressures emerging. Some people like Larry Summers see it emerging more significantly. Federal Reserve Chairman thinks it's uh, somewhat transitory to current inflation in the US. But I think there is an inflationary trend going to re-emerge here. We don't want to fall into stagflation, so we want to avoid that if we can. So I, I think rates stay fairly benign for next year. Year after the outlet years, I think we'll start to see some firming up of rates. One thing I did want to ask you about is your chairmanship of the World Yacht, which some people may know. Tell us about the, the yacht, how you became involved in, and what sort of experiences you had on there. 
Well, we were invited to uh, have lunch on board when it was in Sydney 10 years ago. We got on board and shown around and we had our own yacht and I'm a keen, my both wife and I, keen boat people. And we looked around and there was an apartment there and I said, oh, I wouldn't pay anything like this, so I'd pay this. And, and you know, I'm, like, I'm not interested anyway, I've got my own boats and it'd take a while to sell them. And then the guy rang back and said, look, these people from New Orleans and that we had to do a deal and I signed it up and then I said to my wife six months later, so no, actually it was, that was in February, October that year, I said, we better go and have a look at this ship and see what we like it. We're going to close out in January one way or the other. So we had a look at it and we rather liked it. So this is terrific. And we'd been, I'd owned a lot of boats, nine, that's a lot by my measure. And, and there's all sorts of pluses and minuses owning your own boat, but had wonderful times. We thought it was time for a different sort of journey. So we brought on the world and it goes around the world every year. And I had nothing to do when I was coming back from Norway to do some meetings down here. I critiqued the budget. Chairman called me and said, I don't know anything about this. You're now on the board. I said, gee, <laughs> I got on the board. And, and it was a challenge uh, because I, I was asked to stay on for three, four consecutive years, which is unusual. Most chairmen only stayed for one. But, you know, we went through a reform program. I'm, I'd like to reform him, do things. And, and it was quite a challenge because you've got 157 apartments owned by high net worth, high, high alpha individuals, all have their perspectives, all successful. So everyone had, knew how it should be done their way. <laughs> a lot of them weren't very corporate though. Most of them not corporate people, they were entrepreneurs, commodity people, or, or inherited money. And so getting the corporate balance was right. And the other thing is I lived on a ship, the CEO lived in Florida, I'm a fairly approachable, gregarious sort of fellow. So I had dialogue with a lot of them and you know, I, I worked hard to bring people together. There was lots of debates about, should we allow partnerships or shouldn't we? Should we allow visitors or shouldn't we? Should we allow you know, this and that? Or should we be doing this or that? And so I spent a lot of my time sort of bringing people together and trying to you know, bring a consensus around, which I enjoyed and, and I got nicknamed the mayor of the ship. It was quite fun. My final question is, um, where, where, what does the next few years look like for Trevor Rowe? I can think of one particular company that is uh, potentially looking for new board members and is in need of uh, a certain level of reform. Would you look at joining a, a Crown board if invited or would you look at joining any other boards? Well, I, I, I've done my boards and I've been there, done that. Um, I think boards run the risk these days of being too compliant or compliance orientated. There needs to be a bit of balance here. And governments need to start winding back some of the bureaucracy that affects the corporate world. And they need to get out of the way of business, in my opinion. Uh, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay active. I love what I do. You know, I'm involved in a number of things at the moment. And, and so I'm, you know, consider any proposals that come my way. If I believe I've got something to contribute, but I'm not out vigorously chasing stuff though. But I, you know, people still talk to me, that's <laughs> nice. Trevor Rowe, AO, one of the great Australian corporate leaders and just a, a great Australian at that too. Thanks so much for the generosity of your time. Thank you very much, pleasure.